You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we're looking together at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 10 through 19, and you'll find this on page 917 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19a. Hear the word of God. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Well, after a period of growth and prosperity, the early church was persecuted. It says Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He heard that Jewish Christians had found refuge in the Syrian city of Damascus. So he obtained authorization from the chief priests to seize and bind and extradite anybody he had found. Damascus was about 150 miles north through a wilderness region, and it shows us that Saul was so zealous that he was willing to travel six days on foot to simply arrest the followers of Christ. His unflagging zeal for persecuting Christians was unmatched. But then the ascended Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and it was high noon. And the Lord's glory from heaven shone around him, and it was so brilliant that upon reflection, Paul said that it was brighter than the sun. He was overwhelmed, as you can imagine. So bright was it that Paul Saul was actually blinded by it. <clears throat> and then Jesus spoke to him. He spoke to him from heaven and revealed his identity. He said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And with that statement, the Lord refuted the man's entire life and work. Saul was a broken man. 
He was shocked and humbled and completely blind. And the Lord directed him into the city where he was to wait for Ananias. He must contemplate carefully the significance of what had happened to him. And for the first time, I think Saul really saw the enormity of his sins. And the majesty of Christ Jesus himself and the truth of the gospel. It was an incredible and supernatural experience that Saul would never forget, as you can imagine. Because in meeting Jesus, he had been transformed and now he was a new creation. So here he was in Damascus and he neither ate nor drank for three days as he waited. He was physically blind, but for the very first time in his life, he could spiritually see. And the Lord told him in a vision that Ananias would come and lay hands on him. And meanwhile, the same Jesus appeared to Ananias, one of his disciples, telling him the same thing. Somehow, this resident of Damascus had heard of Saul of Tarsus. He knew about the full-fledged persecution 150 miles south in Jerusalem. And he also knew, somehow, we're not told, that Saul had authorization to arrest Christians. So I don't think it's any wonder that he was stunned by the mission he was given. I think all of us can empathize with poor Ananias and his confusion. He must go to the street called Straight and ask for Saul at the house of Judas. Now let me ask you, how would you have felt if you were told to go to the Middle East and lay hands on Osama bin Laden? Astonished, fearful, confused, it would require faith to carry out this task. So notorious was Saul's reputation that Ananias was terribly frightened. Lord, I've heard about from many about this man how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. But despite his protest, Ananias must go and minister to this man Saul. He'd been chosen by God as an instrument to preach Christ to the Gentiles. The Lord had decreed that Saul of Tarsus would be an ambassador of Christ. And in spite of his infamous role as a persecutor, he would spread the gospel far and wide. It's an amazing story. From his lips and through his writings, people everywhere would hear the gospel. People in all nations, people in high places and low places, Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. But foremost in his ministry would be his witness to the Gentiles, because as Cass read, he said, He who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. <clears throat> Saul's conversion and his call to the ministry had been ordained long ago. Just like your salvation and mine had been ordained long before the foundation of the world. I know it blows our minds, but that's true. That's what it says. Saul was one of Christ's chosen instruments in bringing many to faith. And Jesus assured Ananias that he would learn what his faith would cost him. He had caused so much suffering. He had inflicted so much harm to the Christians. So he would have his own turn of enduring the tribulations of this life. Jesus said, I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
But his days of persecuting were over. The tables would now be turned. And he who was once a vehement enemy of Christ would become a sufferer for Christ. This began almost immediately as the Damascus Jews plotted against him. And from Luke's description, he barely escaped by being let down in a basket. So Ananias goes. He goes to the street called Straight, and he fulfills his commission from the Lord. Entering the house of Judas, he meets Saul for the first time. He lays hands on him. And what is fascinating to me, as an expression of his faith, he addresses him, notice, Brother Saul. Incredible. Simply on the word of Christ alone. Never met the man. And obviously Ananias' own heart had been softened to embrace this new convert. And as a result of his intercession, Saul regains his sight. Something like scales fall from his eyes and his recovery is complete. And from that day forth, he would serve as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this shows that Paul's Damascus experience was both a conversion and a call. These two important elements of the Christian life were combined in his experience. You see, every Christian is converted and every Christian is called. Every Christian is brought to faith and every Christian is set to work. Saul was not only converted to Christianity, but he was called to be an apostle. He was chosen to serve Christ in a very special and unique way. And because of the dual nature of that experience, it was unique. It was unrepeatable. It can't be replicated. Paul's experience is not meant to be a model of our Christian conversion. In other words, nobody else than Paul can claim to have had a Damascus Road experience. How many times have you heard that? Granted, there are some who are converted in a striking, abrupt, extraordinary manner. It happens. Perhaps they turn instantly from blatant sin and rebellion and they turn to a grateful, humble obedience. You've seen it. I've seen it. And such a drastic change in a person. It can be reminiscent of the abrupt change in Saul. But while there are similarities, Saul's experience was one of a kind. The Lord Jesus called him to be an apostle, which cannot be said of anybody since. For one, nobody else has seen the risen Christ. I haven't. I don't think you have. And for another, there are no longer any apostles because they're not needed. The foundation is laid. So technically, nobody can have a Damascus Road experience. And it's important because I think many misunderstand the nature of an apostle. It's an, it's an office that cannot be repeated. It's an office for the first century only. As I said, Ephesians 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. A foundation, as Jared will tell you, is laid once, right? Afterward, the superstructure is built. You can't lay another foundation. You don't lay two foundations, Christ, the apostles, and then the church. There's no more need. 
So this call to apostleship had in view this ministry specifically to the Gentiles. Before him, there was not a formal ministry to non-Jewish people. The gospel and its implications were being worked out among believing Jews. Believing Gentiles would trickle in, but it was nothing compared to the post-Damascus era. The call and commission of Saul as an apostle to the Gentiles was a watershed event. He was sent with the gospel to offer salvation even to the ends of the earth. The cross of Christ has relevance to sinners of all nationalities. The blood of Jesus can cleanse the sin of anybody who trusts in his name. That's the gospel. And all along in the history of redemption, God had given us hints of the Gentile inclusion. You know what I'm talking about. Here and there, he'd revealed promised blessings not only for Jews, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the Moabitess, all those people in in Susa and Persia in the days of Esther, the widow of Zarephath. But you see, only after the resurrection of Christ was the universal scope explicit. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And now the Lord Jesus appoints Saul as an apostle primarily to the Gentiles. And we see in this how the third stage of Jesus' prediction starts to be fulfilled. Do you remember what he said? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We started there. And in all Judea and Samaria, Philip began to spread out and to the end of the earth, Saul, who would become Paul. And as Luke shows, Paul labored tirelessly and traveled extensively from Asia Minor to the Aegean Sea and from Illyricum to the city of Rome. And there were others who joined in, but no one did so with such strategic planning and zeal. Saul. He'd been called, he'd been given a God-given task, which was truly daunting. And as he says in Romans 1, this is what it says. He was called as an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith. He must do this among a largely pagan population who had no theological training. Go out there, proclaim Christ, and bring about the obedience of of faith. Consider him in the Areopagus, talking to Athenian philosophers, pagans. He refers to things like the unknown God, the creator of the world, the author of life, the judgment to come, things that he need not mention to a Jewish audience. Redeemer Church, as far as I know, is comprised largely of believing Gentiles. I think. We're the fruit of his ministry. Do you see that connection? In the providence of God, Paul's letters reached us. They influenced us. And only in eternity will we fully appreciate the significance of what took place on the Damascus Road. And let's think about how his ministry was intended to bring about the obedience of faith. For Saul's ministry to be fruitful, converts must be obedient to the will of Christ. Our response to the gospel is faith, right? And from faith should flow obedience. 
That was the goal of Paul's ministry. Grateful obedience among the converts of Christ. There's no other way in which to provide a credible profession of faith. It shows true saving faith, not just a passing emotion, not just a superficial decision. As John Murray would describe it, what he calls us to is a settled commitment of wholehearted devotion to Christ. Well, that's a high calling, and none of us can fulfill it. I can't. But that's the call. Spurgeon says, faith and obedience are bound up in the same bundle. He that obeys God trusts God, and he that trusts God obeys God. With heart and mind and body, we follow Christ in every area of life, or at least we try. And of course, obedience of faith is not a very popular phrase in our generation. You might even think it's a very strange phrase what seems like an oxymoron. Why would Paul link together such seemingly antithetical concepts? Obedience, faith. And as we'll see, these two concepts are not antithetical, but I believe they're synthetic. In other words, one of them flows out of the other. Much of modern Christianity today is about feelings, emotions, experiences. And please don't misunderstand me as saying that these things are wrong or bad. They're not. God created you and I with feelings and emotions and a capacity to experience. We sing as he plays. It's a wonderful experience. There's deep feeling in that, and that's okay. But God never meant for us to be governed by these things. He equipped us with a mind with which we think his thoughts after him. Young children who are still immature and untrained are dominated by their emotions, correct? They're up and down, they're to and fro, they're thrown into fits by trivial matters. That's being governed by your emotions. One goal in parenting is to train them to master or to govern their feelings, not to be governed by them. As adults with renewed and reasonable minds, we may know the truth and apply it. So in spite of our feelings or our emotions or our experiences, we embrace the truth. Asaph, he did this. He almost stumbled when he viewed the seeming incongruities of this life. The wicked prosper. The godly suffer. He almost stumbled until he looked at those from the vantage point of eternity. He walks into public worship. He's reminded of the final judgment. He sees their end and his view is realigned. When the psalmist was ready to throw in the towel, he spoke truth to his own soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him and my salvation and my God. So with scripture as his counselor, he communed with his own heart. Why am I distressed? Is that reasonable? 
Have I not reason to be encouraged? I'm a believer. I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God. I'm going to heaven. And this affliction is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits me. Oh, my soul, hope in God. You see, God gave us minds with which we may think his thoughts after him. And Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And as we do this, believing his word, our lives begin to take shape. It affects our attitudes. It affects our behavior and our speech and ultimately our joy. Because as Proverbs 23, 7 points out, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The essence of a man is found in the thoughts of his inmost self. What you believe and whom you trust is the most important thing about you. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We know this, that life is short, that death is certain, that Jesus will never forsake us. We know that. Those are plain, honest statements, and the Bible and experience confirm them. So thank God for Jesus. He's the way of escape from death and the wrath to come, and that's good news, because God did not leave us to perish in our guilt and corruption. And the sincere Christian, then, senses the gracious character of so great a salvation. And he's thankful. Isn't that the normal response? Thankful for so great a salvation. His gratitude is expressed through obedience. Remember when Jesus healed those ten lepers? One of them returned to give thanks. A Samaritan, by the way. And Jesus said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Shocking. It's equally shocking when a professing Christian refuses to give thanks. When lip service is given to the commandments, but doesn't even really try. I realize that sinners cannot and do not and will not submit to the will of Christ. But the Christian who claims to be forgiven and accepted and adopted by God doesn't even try. His life is littered with the debris of disobedience and indifference. John says, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. He's not saying keep them perfectly. None of us can do that. Sincerely, we try. As believers, we're sanctified. We're taught that we become more like Christ. And I want you to know that no less than 30 years of Christ's life can be summed up by this statement. 30 years. Listen to this. He went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. If a person is to be like Jesus, then he will try to be obedient. It's an obedience that flows not from fear, but from a sincere and saving faith. It's what they call evangelical obedience. It's the outgrowth of a grateful and believing heart. The Heidelberg helps us here. Heidelberg Catechism 86 puts it this way. Christ 
having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits. You know, to an outsider, to consider or to hear obedience sounds oppressive, but not to a believer. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And by that, I think he means that in some strange, mysterious way, the Spirit gives us strength to do it. And one of the delightful things about Christian obedience is the wisdom that's gained by it. Have you ever noticed that? Psalm 111, verse 10, I think, points this out. This is what the verse says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. So what he's saying is that true wisdom grows by putting into practice what we know. Oswald Chambers, he said this. We learn more by five minutes obedience than by 10 years study. He's got a point. There is such a thing as being educated far beyond our obedience. We want to know all the deep things of the Lord. We want to study all the words of prophecy and know theological concepts. But we haven't put into practice the things we already know. I remember a woman who will remain nameless. Number many years ago. And she would spend, all, literally all day long, she would spend reading articles and listening to podcasts about end time prophecy. She was obsessed with millennial views and the fulfillment of Old Testament predictions. And then she considered herself an expert whose job it was to pass judgment on us lesser Christians who weren't that interested. Meanwhile, her life and her relationships were in shambles. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. One of the reasons we do this, listen to sermons and teachings, is so that we can do the Christian life, right? Hearing a great sermon or listening to a great teaching will do us no good unless we put it into practice. It's not enough to remember what we hear or to repeat what we hear or to commend what we hear. That which must crown our hearing is the doing of what we hear. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves. We try. But then there's a final point that I'd like to make, and it has to do with the importance of a person's calling. I think the text reveals a remarkable way in which Paul was called, and it wasn't a job for which he applied, nor a career for which he planned, as you can see. First, the Lord calls. This wasn't something that Paul could have taken up on his own initiative. He was, he had to be called to be an apostle, consecrated long ago, before the foundation of the world. The sovereign God decreed that he'd fulfill this important task, as he does with each and every one of us. First, he calls those upon whom he's pleased to bestow saving grace, calls you from darkness to light. The effectual call, as Kess prayed this morning. Second, he calls each one of us to perform our respective duties in life. Do you realize 
that each one of us has a calling in life. Not just the minister, every one of us. You're called to be and to do something for the Lord. We're not all called to the same task, but we're all called to perform some task as a mother, a doctor, a teacher, a dishwasher. God calls you to it. To whatever you are called by God, you can do it to serve and glorify him. And every calling is important. Apostles, shepherds, innkeepers. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. He calls some to be wife and mother, two of the highest callings on earth. You have the privilege of loving and supporting your husband and your children. Or perhaps he's called you to be a salesman or a beautician, a secretary or some type of employer. Most important is not to what he's called you, but how you fulfill it. Just as Jesus called Saul to be an apostle, he calls you to be whatever it is. And so you have the privilege of serving him in that task. Students, you may wash dishes, you may change diapers. You may clean clothes or dust shelves. If you do it with gratitude and with his glory in view, you will be commended. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't you want to hear that? You will. God is the one who equips and motivates people for their respective callings. He endows each with gifts and calls each to duty for the common good in his glory. And every believer, every single one, is placed where he or she is best suited and useful. That's you. Every lawful calling is a means of serving God and helping mankind. And in every lawful calling to which God calls, three things are evident. One, the door of providence will open for your appointed work. God will so order the circumstances of your life that you'll occupy that position. I don't care what it is. Waitress. Number two, he'll bless and prosper your efforts to prepare you for it. He'll incline your heart. He'll equip your soul. He'll supply the means and the opportunities. And then third, he'll elevate you in the esteem of others who will confirm your calling. There you go. In the early 1960s, during the space race, three black women were mathematicians at NASA. Against all odds and all kinds of discrimination, Katherine Johnson excelled. She was a member of Carver Memorial Presbyterian Church. She had been there for 50 years. She sang in the choir. And she was a mathematical genius. And she not only helped to put John Glenn into orbit, but she was the one who helped bring him back. And it was a great honor because God had gifted her for it and he had called her to it and she used her talent for his glory and the common good. Katherine Johnson. And it was a great honor for her to be called into service by the infinite God. This humble, 
black woman who was a genius. He called her to it. And isn't it wonderful how he appoints you to your lawful calling? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He knows you. He watches you. He loves you. And he can't wait to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example that you've given to us of the call and conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We're grateful that the Lord Jesus is sovereign, that he's exalted, and he waits to welcome us into heaven. Until that day, we pray that your spirit will sanctify us and keep us faithful so that we might display, at least sincerely, the obedience of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.